0: Good morning. We won't have our usual music today because there's no way for anyone to go over from Ohio. So we'll start with a chant.
1: Om Diao Shantihi, antareksham Shantihi, Pritivi Shantihi, Apa Shantihi, O Shadaya Shantihi. Vanaspataya Shantihi, Vishvedeva Shantihi, Brahma Shantihi, Sarvam Shantihi, Shanti Reva Shantihi, Sama om Shanti Om Shanti Shanti Shantihi, Om. Peace is in the heavens.
0: Peace is in the sky. Peace is in the waters. The earth is filled with peace. The trees, the plants, the herbs are filled with peace. May the peace of Brahman be manifest in all divine forms. And may that peace be ours. Om peace, peace, peace be unto us all. Well, good morning, you hearty souls, <laughs> against all reason, came out of the <laughs> to come here. And thank you for joining online. And want to spend a little time talking about integrating the yogas. A couple of days ago, we celebrated here Swami Vivekananda's puja. And um, if he were alive, he, he would be 161 years old today. But as it was, he died at the age of 39, having accomplished more than any human being would even dream of doing in these short 39 years that he had. Um, He spent, of his very short life, he spent almost four years in this country, going around the country, teaching, uh, giving the teachings of Adanta. He was, I should first say, he was Sri Ramakrishna's foremost disciple, and he was the one who brought... Vedanta and his Hinduism to this country in 1893 for the world's parliament of religions in Chicago. It was the first time representatives from the world's religions got together in one place. It was the world's first interreligious gathering ever. So it was he came and he uh, talked about Vedanta and the Hindu tradition. He after he was um, he was deeply appreciated when he was there. And he went around the country and taught, gave the teachings of Vedanta and the teachings of the Hindu tradition all around the country. Basically, he was teaching what we teach still today, which is the divinity of the soul, uh, our innate capacity to realize and manifest this divinity within ourselves, and the unity of all religions. That is still what we teach today. So the taught strength, he taught our, our, that all strength and all power is within us. He taught that the power and purity of the, of the soul, it's innate power and purity. And those are the things we still teach today. He also taught that if you want to worship God, you can start by serving the person right in front of you. That if you want to worship God, serve human beings. Serve the beings right in front of you. And it's actually because of Vivekananda that we even know the word yoga. Were it not for Vivekananda, there would not only be no Vedanta, no no temple here today. There'd be no yoga. All those yoga studios are here because of the because of Vivekananda coming here and talking about it. It did not. It was not happening before him. Now yoga isn't what we do at the yoga studio. It's not about the bending and the stretching and the getting flexible and all that. It's that is actually Hatha Hatha yoga which was considered, a, it's a fairly modern invention. By modern, I mean like 500 years old, because Hinduism is quite ancient, so 500 years is just a flash in the pan. So it was meant, Hatha Yoga was created to so that we could meditate for longer periods of time. So we could sit for 12, 18 hours comfortably. And of course, being Americans, it's like, oh, forget the meditation, let's just get down to this, the bending and the stretching and the being flexible and looking gorgeous. So, Vivekananda brought yoga to this country and he taught. He basically, what he did was kind of organize it so that it would be easier for us to sort of put together. And there are four major yogas Raja Yoga, the path of meditation and concentration, Karma Yoga, the path of action, Jnana Yoga, the path of discernment between the transitory and the eternal, and Bhakti yoga, the path of love, or a loving devotional aspect to God, a personal form of God. And the problem is, we often think we should choose one. We should choose one because that's my strong point, and that's what I'm going to do. But what we really have to do is integrate all these yogas, and above all, what we have to do is integrate those yogas into our normal life, into our daily life, into the life that we have so we don't have an unintegrated life. So we can have just one whole human being rather than my spiritual life over here and my everyday life over here. Because an unintegrated life is not a, not a great place to be. We have to have, we're only one, one being and we have to have all the parts of our life put together. So we can't have two feet in two boats. It gets really uncomfortable. So we have to go have them going in the same direction, going towards the same goal. And all of our thoughts our goals, our ambitions, our little loves, our big loves, all that has to be included into our spiritual life. Now, Swami Vivekananda's teachings on yoga were transcribed by a stenographer, J.J. Goodwin, bless him forever, and he put these things into books so that we have um, these, his book, in fact, Raja Yoga, which was published in 1896, was the first modern formulation of modern yoga. It was actually a sentence or a couple of sentences from the book Raja Yoga that George Harrison of the Beatles read. And that, he said, was a huge turning point in his life, that if there's a God, we have to know it. That if there's divine realization, I have to realize it. He read that, and he completely changed his life. He said having money, having fame, was not, did, not make, did not make us happy. I realized I had to have something else. So it was reading those things from... Raja Yoga, which he was, got, Ravi Shankar's brother gave him the book. And that was a turning point in his life. And when the Beatles got interested in, in Indian spirituality, they came a whole generation of people calling, following after him, including many of us <laughs> with gray hair. So what he said is that, um, let me go back here. He said, in Raja Yoga, Vivekananda says, and these words are very famous, each soul is potentially divine. The goal is to manifest this divinity by any means, he said, by controlling nature, either external or and internal, which is the bigger bear. Do this either by work or by worship or by psychic control, that is, controlling the mind, or philosophy, that is, through our reason. Do, do one or all of these and be free, he said. He said this is the whole of religion basically being free. He said doctrines and dogmas and churches and rituals and dogmas are of secondary importance. In other words, we have to do something. All the rituals, all the official words on religion, all these things are of secondary. Those come later. Those those are just icing on the cake. Get to the cake realize this divinity. That's the whole point of religion. So we have to do something. We can't just sit around having high thoughts. It has to be followed by action. It has to be incorporated incorporated into our life. And why? He talked about it. Because freedom, spiritual freedom, which is the highest goal of us. Freedom is our real nature. We all crave it. But it is our real nature. That's why we crave it. Vedanta says that the biggest goal we have, the goal of all goals, is to realize that divinity within our own hearts. That is what, I mean, we have littler goals, but the big arrow is going towards realizing who we really are, realizing our divine nature. And we can't get caught up in the little stuff, the doctrines, the dogmas, all the rituals, all this, the whole point, find out who we really are. And when we see that divinity in ourselves, we'll see it in everybody else too. And then you say... Fine. Why would I want to bother with that now? You know what? I don't have time. I am so stressed. I am so busy. I just don't have time for that. You know what? When I have time, then then I'm going to do it. When I have time, I have energy, I have more resources, I'm just going to do that. And that's why wouldn't I want to just postpone it until I have time? Well, because even if we're just talking about day-to-day life, just practical life. It's the only thing that's going to make us happy. Because they, we do all these things every day that we think is going to make us happy. It's like, I'm going to have that, then I'm going to be happy. I'm going to do this, and then I'll be happy. I'm going to have this, fulfill this goal of my life. I'm just going to have that, whether it's a, a chocolate bar or a cup of coffee or getting the better job or getting the boy of my dreams or or fulfilling this ambition or getting my kids through college, getting my daughter married, my son into a better position... That was sexist, wasn't it? Anyway, <laughs> reverse those roles. And that, has that made us any happier than we were? No. We just, okay, did that, okay, now what's going to make me happy? So the only thing that's ever going to give us the joy that we really seek, that peace in our hearts that we really seek, is to realize our own divine nature. That's the only thing that's going to give us fulfillment. And everything else is going to always fall short, and we're always going to be looking for something else something else to give me fulfillment. Just our nature's human beings. And we'll keep going round and round and round, these little goals and these little joys and these little fulfillments, and we can go around it until the day we die. And then we're going to come back and do the same thing again. Because it's going be, to be ground all day until we realize who we are. And when we realize that divine within our hearts, we'll see it with everybody else too. And when we realize who we are, we won't be running around, looking for happiness somewhere else. We won't be looking, you know, starving for other preci- other people's appreciation or their approval. We won't be blaming other people for what's happening to us because we'll be content in our own hearts. We'll have that peace within ourselves. Our view of the world then won't be so distorted as it is now. We'll see the world not as a place of horror or of genuine or of real happiness. We'll see the world for what it is, which is just the world. It's just what it is. When our inner life is fulfilled, when it's complete, the outer world just will naturally fall into place. But this has to be put together first. Okay, well, fine. So how do we do this? Well, Swamiji says, just do it. Start somewhere. Do it. He said we can manifest our own divinity through karma yoga, through work, through bhakti yoga, through love through j- jnana yoga, through the intellect, Raj yoga through meditation, but just start, do it. And he says, any one of these yogas can bring us the spiritual freedom that we all want and desire. Well, so sometimes we'll start thinking, okay, I'm a jnani. I have a strong power of reasoning. I'd like to use my intellect. That's very important in my life. I have good reasoning power, so I'm going to do jnana yoga and achieve self-knowledge through that. Or then we might say, well, you know, yeah, I'm smart, but my motivation, that's really much more through, the, through love. If you want to get me, it'll be through love. Or then we think, you know what, the day day reality of my life is that I work all day long and into the night. So why not use the power of work, karma yoga, to achieve my end? You get a twofer, right? Two for one. I have to work anyway. Make that a part of my spiritual life. And then we end up getting sick and tired of working all the time. We go, I'm so sick of just being busy all the time. So we go, okay, I'm going to do Raja Yoga. Turn off the outside noise. Turn off the inside noise. I just want some peace. And I'm going to meditate and I'm going to achieve self-realization. I'm just going to sit here till that happens. And good luck. Because as Swamiji says, any of these yogas, can we can achieve our goal, but we can achieve any spiritual attainment through any of these, but that's if we do any yoga correctly, pretty much perfectly. But if we don't do them correctly or perfectly, then we're going to have some unintended consequences that's going to get in our way, and they're going to give us some obstacles that are going to be something that we can easily trip over. And that's why we blend them. Okay. So if, for example, karma yoga, it's a great yoga to do. We often think, I'm going to be, I'm working all the time. Karma yoga is going to work for me. I'm active. So, you know, why not do a twofer? But it's much harder than we think. Because when we do any action, we always have some sort of motive in there, consciously or unconsciously. And that means that every action it's not just act action it's unselfish action and that's the problem because we want our we always have some sort of desire at the end of that rope that we're pulling it's like okay let's say that i'm going to do an offering and i want to do it for karma yoga so we can't do it without any motive without any desire without an expectation for good job Great, or a smile, or even a nod, not even a wink. We have to do it without any expectation whatsoever. So whether our work is received with praise or blame, success or failure, inside we have to be exactly the same, no reaction. So we make, let's say we work all day on a meal, or we work on a, or weeks on a work project, or we're studying hard for this for an exam that we've got to do, or we're always in the hope that it's going to go well, that it will be a success. But if it isn't, whatever it is, then our hopes are dashed. We get upset. We feel like it should shouldn't have happened this way. What could I have done to make this better? We all want our work to be appreciated, or at least noticed, or at least not berated. But we have to be exactly the same. And that's the difficulty because to have our reaction being the same in praise or in blame, success or failure, is a very tough thing to do. We're not used to it. We're always used to getting some sort of positive feedback. And if we don't get positive feedback, we don't like it. So how do we do this? It's not easy and it's not natural for us. That's the tough part. Because, and what are the... If we do follow the path of karma yoga, if that's our path, what, what are the obstacles that go with that? Well, ego is a big one. Look how much I can do. Look how much I can do. I can do this, I can do that, and I can do, and I still have time, and I'll do something else. You know, Americans by nature are very active. We love activity. And so if we can do more in a short amount of time, man, are we happy. If we can do something, well, yeah. Now, so we get this ego about what I can do. I can do this. No one else can do what I can do. Very easy to have that lurking thought in there. In fact, anybody can do anything. So the other problem is that we get addicted to action. Swami a Holy Mother's disciple up in Portland, always used to talk about how Rajas, activity, d- demands to be repeated. Activity likes being repeated. So we can just get addicted to just being busy. And Americans have this thing now about, I, I'm busy, I'm busy. And if we're not busy, there's something wrong with us. If we're not busy, we're either lazy or even worse, we're boring. So we, how do we, we, we feel like we have to be busy? But being karma yoga isn't being busy. It's not just frittering away action. It's not just being active for the sake of being active. It has to be directed and concentrated, and it has to be motiveless or unselfish work, totally unselfish. So we we can't be like guinea pigs running around in a cage and think that's karma yoga. It has to be unselfish. So that's why karma yoga has to be balanced with raja yoga, the yoga of meditation. The goal of raja yoga is to find the divinity within ourselves through concentrated meditation. Cut off the outside noise, and it was even harder, cut off the inside noise. Shut off, put the, put a sign up here at the billboard that says new no admission. Put that in and let no extraneous thoughts come in and think of that divinity within our hearts. No matter whether it's a personal form of God or the luminous presence of the divine Atman within, but turn everything off and just put the mind on that. And then once this mind that always wants going back and forth all the time, once that's stilled and it's purified, the Atman will naturally shine forth on its own, in its own splendor. And that the yoga of meditation is such a relief from this activity of karma yoga. But Raja Yoga is also a very tough path because it may look like we're meditating to the outside and we may, but hopefully, we're not deceiving ourselves. Because often, what we're doing when we're sitting and meditating is like planning next week's activities, thinking about the meal that we're gonna make, uh, what I should have said in that conversation, and next time I see, him I'm gonna say that, or where I left the car key, or re- revisiting old things that we tend to think about all the time. So, hopefully, I mean, people may think we're just having this great meditation, but in fact, our minds are going, Bleh. That's not meditation. That's why meditation is really hard. It's Raja Yoga is also not going into this like cat space. It's not relaxation. Raja Yoga is not, which is just having a, a dull mind. It's not just you know having internals staring at a de- at a blank wall. It's a concentrated effort to keep the mind. On divinity, it's it's described in the Yoga Sutras as a container of uh, a, a container of oil being poured into another bit of oil. So there's no drop, no noise. It's a very smooth, concentrated pouring of oneself into that meditation, and it's very hard. Because the mind just will not quiet down, which is totally normal. Because if all of our time, except for our deep sleep, the mind is going outside, active, 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 you can't expect the mind to just... (coughs) We're going 80 miles an hour on the freeway and then throw the car into reverse. What's going to (coughs) happen? There's a reaction. So the mind keeps, wants to turn, 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 turn. Very difficult to tone the thing down. Make it calm. So... That's why Raj Yoga needs to be balanced with karma yoga. It's very hard. Um, Swami Brahmanada, uh, otherwise known as Maharaj, Shramakrishna's spiritual son, said a person who wants to lead a meditative life should meditate at least sixteen hours a day. Right. My reaction to all <laughs> laugh. <laughs> it's like it's hard to meditate for one hour half an hour, 15 minutes. That's why we need to balance it with Raj yoga, with karma yoga, with unselfish action to balance each other out. And that's, it's normal. Our life is so hectic, it's so stressful, it's so amped up right now. So we need to have both of them so they balance each other out. Now, the temptation with Raja Yoga, apart from the fact that who's going to sit and really meditate 16 hours a day, good luck, is the tendency to become self-absorbed. It's like, do not bother my meditation. You're disturbing my spiritual life. That person in the hospital, okay, Well, he'll have to wait three hours until my meditation is over. Very easy to become self-absorbed. The other thing, again, is going into cat space. To think that we're meditating when in fact we're just like, the mind is just dull. It's just dull. Nothing's happening there. It looks like you're meditating. We may feel all relaxed, but it's because we're half asleep or asleep. It's not meditation. So then we turn to jnana yoga, the path of knowledge. To, and through knowledge, it's the path through knowledge and spiritual discernment. Now, this is not the knowledge that you get from books. We can't read our way into enlightenment. We can't read our way even to basic wisdom. We can get inspired by books. We can get sort of a push forward to move to activate our spiritual life through inspiration through books. But it doesn't do the work that we have to do. We're the ones who have to deal with this mind. The book isn't going to do it for us. We have to do it. It's our will and our own self-control and our power of concentration. The book won't do that. We have to do it ourselves. So what Jnana Yoga says is that we have to use our power of reasoning and concentration to say what is eternal and what is transitory what is eternal well the more we eliminate they call this nati nati not this not this it's like we notice we have to always be analyzing our minds saying what is my mind going toward oh you're going towards that is that eternal no turn the page my mind is going towards this is this eternal or is this transitory yeah, that's transitory. Turn the page. Nati, nati, not this, not this. Because we find our minds going towards things, being attracted to some things, being either experiencing aversion or a, a, attraction to something. All these things, the minds, it's like, no, put it this way. Use the power of discrimination. What is eternal? What is non eternal? And eventually we come down to the fact that only that divinity within our hearts, the Atman, only that is absolutely eternal, has been, has never born, never died, can never die, never experience any hunger or thirst or pain or pleasure, not affected by illness, by death, by Alzheimer's or anything else. It's the light of our consciousness. It is the power that gives us the power to reason. It's the it is the source of all our creativity. It's the source of all love and joy. And that's who we realize. Without the Atman, this body-mind complex that we're so identified with is just, just a piece of meat. With, we're nothing without that divine light shining within our hearts. So we have to constantly remember what is eternal and what is non-eternal. And it's very difficult. You need a very sharp mind and a very alert mind. Or else we, we end up getting washed down the river. So, if jnana Yoga is practiced imperfectly, or rather haphazardly, we may you know think of our think of our great intellect and be really inspired by these great thoughts. And who doesn't want to? You know, these things are so the the truths that these great texts teach. It's the truth. It's the highest truth. It's very inspiring. But until we incorporate them into our lives, they're not really helpful. We have to use them ourselves. Because without it, unless we actually practice it, it's intellectual gymnastics. It's just intellectual playtime. And we enjoy thinking these fun thoughts, but unless we incorporate them into our own life and our own actions, how we act, how we react, how we treat ourselves and other people, then then it's just undigested. Thoughts, undigested spirituality. It's like we're eating spiritual junk food and not digesting the food. We have to employ them in our lives. We should be aware that our lives should reflect what we say that we are. And if it doesn't, that means there's some sort of dissociative behavior going on. We have to have everything pulled together into one one whole being. Because it's really easy to have it end up be just being dry intellectual playtime. And that's fun, but it isn't, doesn't change our lives for the better. It doesn't make us any happier than we are already. And the whole point of spiritual life is that it has to be an integrated life so that every part of our life is fed by our spiritual life. Every part, every single thing. You can't compartmentalize our spiritual life away from everything else. Uh, Sister Navadita, the great student of Swami Vivekananda, said She wrote in his introduction to the complete works, and she said that Swamiji's ideal was no distinction between the secular and the sacred. Life itself is religion. Which means we can't have any separation. We couldn't make these artificial distinctions. It's all part of our one life, and that whole thing needs to be fed by our spiritual life. Because that's, that's what's going to give us joy. That's what's going to make us happy. Very simple. An integrated life where every part of our life is there. And it has to be there. Uh, So everything we realize that everything we experience, everything we see, we touch, we experience, all all of that is Brahman, this infinite divine existence. It's all divine. But we can't sort of cherry-pick. It's like, oh, this part is Brahman, not that part. (laughs) It's all Brahman, yeah. So then we go back to the path of bhakti yoga, the path of the loving devotion to God. The path of love is easiest for many people because the easiest way for us to concentrate on anything is to love it. You know, when I was a very young teenager, there was nothing I loved more than the Beatles. It was like anything about the Beatles would get my attention. Anything that they did would get my attention. My walls were filled with, with pictures of them all. And listen, I could sing every one of their songs backwards and forwards. And that was so any t- my mind would go there. When I was even younger, I was like my dog and my cat. When I was away at school and they had been missing my I'd write mean, a little I would write their names down because I love my cat and my dog so much. It's like so our minds still are guided often guided by love. What we love is where our minds are gonna go. So we may have whether it's our our, our husband, our wife, our partner, our, our kids, our pets our dear friends, those that's where our minds are going to go. And that's where it's easiest to concentrate because that's where the mind naturally goes. So why not use that power of love to make the mind naturally concentrated to think about God, assume a relationship with divine. We can think about God as our, our mother or father, as our friend, as our beloved, as our child, as the. Uh, Baby Krishna, the baby Jesus ba- the well, Teresa of the child Jesus with So many saints in India Worship the baby Gopala, the baby Krishna Ramlala, the baby Rama So many songs now about the young Sri Ramakrishna or The young Sardadevi Having these meditations Because it goes naturally with the way that we think And so it's easier to concentrate our mind on something That's real to us as our relationships are very real to us in a very visceral sort of way, we can have that sort of relationship with the divine. Whether whether it be Jesus or Mary or Ramakrishna or Holy Mother or Buddha or Shiva or Ganesha, it doesn't matter. But something where we feel a powerful attraction and something that seems real to us and that can be integrated into the rest of our lives. So, Love is a magnet, because the problem with all these yogas is that our minds are very dispersed all the time. They're like scattered like seeds everywhere. But love has the power to kind of get all those seeds and put it in one packet, because love is so powerful. It's such a powerful force. Not for everybody. For many people, the, their reasoning or something is, is a different, but for many people, that ends up being an, the, the most workable path for them. So it de- puts it like all these scattered powers in the mind, and they form into this one like laser beam of incredible strength. When you get that kind of intense, concentrated energy, you can do anything you can even realize God that kind of intense energy and power that comes with that kind of concentration. Now, bhakti yoga is certainly very tempting. Shramakrishna said that God can be realized through the path of bhakti alone but the path of bhakti has pitfalls too because if we practice it haphazardly then we can run into all these obstacles too just like any other path because we can have all this like love all this emotional froth that doesn't sink down it's like a cappuccino with too much milk froth on the top and it doesn't sink down into the coffee you know kind of stirred in so you have to have you have to have get beyond the froth and incorporate it because it could just be reveling in our emotions. You know, just like luxuriating in this idea, but it doesn't affect the rest of our lives. We have to, we can't leave, leave our brains at the door when we practice bhakti yoga. We also we have to use our powers of reasoning because we've got this for, we've got this for a good reason, it needs to be used. The other thing is because we can become so attached and so identified with our own idea of what God is, our own chosen ideal, our own favorite form of God, that we become a little dismissive about everybody else's. We, we can become fanatics. It's like my form of God and my way of worship is the best because look how great I am. <laughs> look, how, look how much this has done for me. And then we might want to impose that on somebody else. We may just try to do it through, you know, reasoning. Hey, try, try this. This is, you know, come, come my way. Or maybe through emotional sort of whatever, whatever you call that. Yeah, but, or trying to get someone there through, through come my way. Yeah, you know how, you, you're, you're just like me, come on my way. Or maybe through, through, real, through, through real coercion. Emotional coercion or or other forms of coercion. And then what happens? It's deadly. Because you've taken away someone else's spiritual freedom. Bad for them, bad for us. Who are we to judge? If there's one thing that Swami Vivekananda loathed, it was the idea of stepping on other people's spiritual freedom. People would, some of his disciples would say, look what that person's talking about, what they're doing. he'd say, hands off. Hands off. Everybody has their own way of spiritual growth. Hands off. Leave them to grow in their own way. Hands off. So we too should not presume to think that other people need our help with their spiritual life. If you see someone going way off the rails, you may say, you know, uh, are you doing okay? <laughs> but but if, they're, if they're at peace, if they're happy, if they're not breaking any laws, then let them grow in their own way. But two, unless this bhakti sinks down into our everyday life, it's not going to be helpful for us. It's going to be annoying for other people and it's not going to be helpful to us because it all has to be integrated into our daily life because we need to have our... That's why jnana and bhakti have to be balanced against each other. If they're not, we run into trouble. So, that's why Sri said that the ideal was jnana, mishra, bhakti or bhakti combined with knowledge was the ideal path because they balance each other so well they really balance each other well because as Sri Ramakrishna so sweetly pointed out how can you love someone unless you know them it's like i lo- i've never seen you before but i love you <laughs> no you got to when you get to know somebody then you fall in love with them you have to you have to know them first so that they balance each other. The jnana becomes balanced with bhakti, so it be- doesn't become this dry intellectualism or this intellectual playtime. And the jnana balances the bhakti so you don't get the sentimentality and you don't get the, the fanaticism. So with them all, with these yogas are put together in full expression. We put all, combine all these yogas. Then we can see the oneness of all paths the oneness of all beings, the oneness of all religions, the oneness of all that exists on the world. We see that all modes of worship, all these are just all one beautiful form of this one grand reality, Brahman, this infinite divine existence that lies within our hearts, that lies within the heart of every being. And that's who we are. And these yogas are meant to help us sort of get started, you know, to, to help us carve out a path for ourselves with a balancing of all these four yogas. In the book Karma Yoga, Swami Vivekananda says that people foolishly think that they can make themselves happy. Well, that's kind of familiar, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, do we know any better? No. But then he said, after years of struggle, they find that true happiness consists in killing selfishness. And that no one can make anybody happy except for themselves. And that's the lesson we all have to learn. And he said, every act of charity, every thought of sympathy, every action of help, every good deed is taking so much of self-importance away from the little self. The little self basically the ego-gorged being that we identify with, the little self that causes us so much misery. And we think by feeding that engorged ego, we're going to be happy. And it's just the opposite. It's taking away from the ego that brings us peace and joy. He said, here we find that jnana, bhakti, and karma all come to one point. They all converge into one point. And he said the highest ideal is eternal and entire self-abnegation where there is no I but only thou, only thou. So every yoga is needed in our lives, every yoga. And our big job is to put them together and to realize who we are we, because we have to internalize them. We have to put them together into our lives so they actually work for us so that we incorporate them into our daily lives and it has to be something that we don't do on just on weekends or when we have an you know what? i got three minutes i'm gonna i'm gonna do some of that yoga now i'm gonna do that because i've got a little bit of in my busy life we have to it has to be who we are down to our bone marrow our spiritual life it has to be more real than anything else in our life that's when we get true peace and then we are going to erase that barrier between secular and spiritual and find out that we're only one infinite divine being. Thank you. And now, since we're bereft of Chinese music, I'll give some announcements, which are very simple. On Wednesday, we will again have our reading from the Life of, of uh, Teachings of Swami Akhandananda uh, by Swami Anadanada, Wednesday at 5 o'clock. Uh, Saturday we'll have a reading from the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna at 5 p.m., and Sunday, a week from today, will be Swami Brahmananda Puja. I mentioned uh, Ramakrishna's spiritual son, so in, in instead of, of a talk next Sunday, there will be a, a puja, a ritualistic worship, at 11 o'clock of Swami Brahmananda, followed by a homa fire, a Vedic fire purification ceremony down in the convent, and prasad. So, you're all welcome to attend online. If you can get here, you're welcome. Okay, so I thank all of you for coming, both stalwart souls here and uh, stalwart souls out there. And I'll conclude with a chant
1: Om poor namadaf, poor namidam, poor nat, poor namudachate, poor nasya, poor namataya. Om,
0: filled with Brahman are the things we see. Filled with Brahman are the things we see not. From Brahman flows all that is. From Brahman flows all, yet Brahman remains the same. Om, peace, peace, peace be unto us all. Thank you all for joining, and stay safe in the weather.